Asura azal kum nekries, chamasia ki vazalazu sore maval aknei, kore mavara amiatiek ipe. Welcome to Con Langery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. With us across the pond, we have Bianca, Ma- Bianca Richards. <laughs> Hello. I still can't get that right. Um, and it's okay, I messed it up on the phone the other day as well. And uh, in what, what probably will be my future home of Wisconsin is uh, one William Annis. Hello. That sounds like he's literally in your future home, just like waiting, <laughs> taking care of it. No, like, I don't think house he's... sitting for George. I don't think he's in any of the uh, UW uh, University apartments. I, I have applied for housing. <laughs> That's one thing I have down. I still don't have down how I'm going to pay for everything, but <laughs> if all else fails, I can get a job. Yes. I probably yes. will have to. Yes. Um, a couple of announcements. Um, this will be Bianca's last show. No! Um, Bianca, um, you want to sort of talk about why? Yeah, um, well, obviously, since I started this, I've had some big life changes. And that I moved countries, I got married, and I should be moving into a new house. So... Kind of my life has switched. Um, I am going to need time to move, and I'm currently looking for a job. So time-wise, not having as much time to do this, as well as I've just kind of lost interest in conlanging as a hobby. So I wasn't putting as much effort into the research that goes behind this. And if I'm not going to do it all the way, then I don't really want to do it. I figure you can get someone who will put the effort in. Okay. I think it's funny also, in a previous episode, we called my husband, like, Yoko Ono, but he was like, no, no, you should continue doing it. And I was like, I just don't feel like it. And he's like, no, continue. And I was like, no. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll... But you'll be back. Yeah. Yeah, we'll... I mean, that's not saying I've, like, left forever. I mean, I I still enjoy calling you to some extent. I just don't have the same interest I had when I started. Right. Right. Well, um, this uh, let's say this will be for now your last episode as a, a regular host. But you know, maybe sometime if you have time, well, we can still bring you on as a guest from time to time. Yeah. Um, well, good luck with all your um, moving into the new house and getting a job and everything that <laughs> you have to get done to survive in Britain. Yes. Um, another, I want to do this just a quick note there was a little kerfuffle on the ZBB about uh, something about us somebody just now found out about the um, us featuring one of their conlangs and wasn't terribly happy I won't go into the details here you can go on there and, and go to the conlangery thread if you want to figure out what exactly went down it's all documented there but I will say from now on, I'm going to make it a policy once we decide on our featured conlang for the week, I'm going to see if I can find an email or something 
so I can contact the author just as a heads up. I'm never going to wait for permission because I don't feel that I should have to do that. But certainly I feel that we should be contacting people even though we have and we just got out of that habit. Anyway, it's hard. Oh, I would know that there were also a couple of people that I had to email because they didn't have very much public info, and we did get their permission when they released stuff that wasn't publicly available. Well, yeah, certainly anything that's not publicly available, we do need permission for, obviously. But I have, I feel like anything is published, we have the right to review. But yeah. it probably would have been more polite of us to contact the people first, anyway. Um, but... Not uh, let's not belabor that any more than we have to. I just wanted to make the announcement, and then we're going to move in. This is a topic that William suggested quite a while ago, and it it looks like a really interesting thing that not many conlangers really are doing. It's called uh, so we're going to talk about discourse particles, and William. Can you define what a discourse particle is for us here? Um, that can be surprisingly difficult. Mm-hmm. The secret about discourse particles is these are the sorts of words that when you ask people what they mean, native speakers especially will say it doesn't mean anything at all, which, is always, which must be completely exasperating for field linguists. If it doesn't mean anything, why would you say it? <laughs> <laughs> but the the point of these words is not that they don't meet anything they don't mean anything but two of the really strong characteristics of discourse particles are they do not affect the truth conditions of the statement if i say i went to the store today and something like i even went to the store today adding even does not change the truth conditions of the statement mhm i've i've added you know some extra stuff second of all it does not affect the propositional content Again, the propositional content, that's the, that's the state of affairs I'm describing, going to the store. Mm-hmm. And I totally like went to the store yesterday. It's, it's the same propositional content as I went to the store yesterday, but the discourse particles add to different things to it. Okay. Second, and, and, and then the last big thing is discourse particles are related to the active speech context, not the situation being described. Uh-huh. So, right. so we're talking about how we interact with the people that we're talking to and who are listening to us is where these particles operate. They are not usually um, operating at the time of the situation. Yeah. So from your, um, from your notes and um, the papers that you linked uh, that I was looking at, it looks like discourse particles are a lot of um, things like turn-taking and introducing new topics or changing the topic of discussion, that kind of thing. Right. So there are various ways to divide discourse particles. Um, Definitely that's one of them, sort of higher-level discourse structure, turn-taking, repairing thing. You know, when your sentence goes awry or you've said something wrong, how do you go back and fix? Hesitation. Um, Hesitation, right. Um, that's one thing. Um, uh, a surprising amount has to do, it's sort of related to this, is maintaining discourse coherence. 
mm. saying, yes, the thing I'm saying now actually fits with what I've said before, or maybe it doesn't. Um, <laughs> and then there's various kinds of attitude. How do we feel about what's being said? Is it surprising? Is it alarming? Is it good? Is it bad? Um, are other things that, that come into this. And then depending on the kind of language you're talking about, a bunch of things we think of as adverbs um, might be counted as particles, especially things like scalar particles, things like even and only, where you have um, a continuum of possibilities and you're selecting one or the other end of that continuum. Um, and so this can get a little bit complicated. We can talk about more some of the details of how things can mix and match. But so those are discourse particles. The reason I think about them a lot is because I've studied ancient Greek for so long. And one ancient Greek, especially, especially literary ancient Greek, uses them a lot, a lot, a lot. In Homer, it is not unusual to find chains of three or four discourse particles in a row. Mm-hmm. Which drives your Greek instructor mad because you have to find some way to translate that to let the teacher know that you understand what's going on. <laughs> um, and second, the state of ancient Greek scholarship in the modern world is the very best 19th century linguistics has to offer. <laughs> this, is change, this is changing somewhat, but a lot of the work that we're still working, a lot of the instructional material explaining the particles is just disastrously bad. So, in other words, they really aren't into discourse in the first place, are they? Only since the 90s have some very snazzy Dutch linguists finally started thinking about discourse questions in terms of the classical languages. And they've been doing some really great work. Um, and it is, it is from this work in ancient Greek particles that I have developed a deep loathing for the word emphasis. <laughs> so you'll see a list of Greek particles and five or six of them will be called emphatic. <laughs> Thanks. That helps. So, and there are some other languages that tend to be particle-rich. Um, German and Dutch are both popular topics for dissertations. Oh, yes. Yeah, right. So you remember I remember your- when I was taking German, it was like, I know what they mean when they say them, but I could never figure out where on earth I would ever use them. Ja, doch mal, all that fun. It's I, like- think, um, I think it was maybe in... Uh, the awful German language by Mark Twain that I, I saw the joke that Germans will stick also just basically anywhere they can. Right. So he did not, he was one of those people who he asked some poor German what also meant and they told him it didn't mean anything. Yeah, obviously. And we have a paper that actually covers also and several others. It actually does do something. It just, it's just that, any any time you have these discourse particles, people kind of make fun of them because no one no one consciously knows what they mean unless they're a trained linguist trying to figure out what they mean. It is very hard to explain them. I'll always remember being where was I? Either IRC, maybe Second Life, whatever. It was an international group, and I used the phrase to boot. Uh. <laughs> and the Germans like, what the, does that mean? And it took us a good five minutes to tease that out to explain what to boot meant. <laughs> I I was trying bef- uh, earlier today, because I was trying to do some of my own research, trying to figure out explanations of the some of the the uh, particles that occur in Singlish, like uh, uh-huh. the la. Right. And nothing publicly available gave me anything that I could 
I could tease out. So, no. I, when I was doing some research for the show, I found a, a paper on the Singlish, and it had a political cartoon, or a, a you know, not political cartoon, just a a cartoon in some local uh, paper, which it gave like six different interpretations for law. <laughs> I mean, jokingly, but anyway. So the point is, the particles are really tough to explain. Um, older free grammars may be very bad about explaining them because they don't. It's very hard to tease out their meaning, and, and the idea of thinking about discourse at a much higher level um, is not new to linguistics, but new to some of these older languages that are particle rich. And what was the other thing I was going to say? I forget completely. So. Anyway, do we want to go down a list of, of some of the things these particles can do in a little bit more detail? Sure. Why not? All right. So one of the, the pretty common ones is a discourse particle can let you know how the speaker thinks about things. In particular, is this information expected or unexpected? Okay. So like, so, wow. Well, wow is more an interjection. I'm thinking, well, yeah, yeah I'm thinking more in terms of things like, you know, you know, I went down to the basement yesterday, and wouldn't you know it, there was a foot of water. Uh-huh. Right? So that phrase, wouldn't you know it, is <laughs> me expressing, well, this is quite surprising. <laughs> so we have our, our fav- uh, a somewhat sarcastic uh, discourse particle or discourse phrase. English tends to use fixed phrases for these. We don't have single words. We have some, but for the most part, we don't have a, a large collection of single words that don't otherwise have meaning in other places in the language. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing. Very often, discourse particles let the speaker indicate what they think their listener, how their listener is going to respond to things. So if you are expecting the person listening to you to regard something surprising or unlikely or unpleasant, they might include a particle. Um, Ancient Greek has one called man, which is always used when you're saying something that your listener might not like or might not know. Um, it's, these are really hard to translate, something like really or um, definitely or things like that. When you want to prop up information that your listener might disagree with or find unpleasant. That kind of reminds me of Chinese has jiu, which... Kind of, sometimes it introduces unexpected information. Sometimes it draws focus to something. Sometimes it's just more like a focus particle, though. Sure. And and, and that's typical, and we can talk about that complexity in a little bit more later. mm -hmm. Um, Another pretty common kind of discourse particle is something that marks discourse cohesion. Is the statement I'm making related to what I've already said? Is it a digression? Have we popped back to a previous topic? Mm-hmm. Things like anyway. Boom. Oh man, back. I'm so guilty of using anyway. So anyway, when I used it, came to have like a secondary meaning. So whenever I was on the phone with my mom, we'd be talking, and then whenever I had to go, I'd just be like, "So anyway," and she'd be like, "Bye." <laughs> See, I, I. Um, That's kind of a digression. I almost- it is tend to use anyway uh, as like a hesitation marker or as a um, can you say something more? And sure. it throws people off, especially um, non-native speakers. But anyway, let's 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 not let's See? not dwell too much on one particular 
Uh, <laughs> Look at that which, guiding which the discourse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so these are very, very common because we rarely tell stories in you know, a straight-ahead fashion. We have to lay background and we might go off on tangents and all this. So these are very common. Mm-hmm. Um, another one, discourse repair. People speaking not from a script are remarkably disfluent. Yeah. Uh, so we have to do things to go back to correct what we've said, to clarify what we've said, um, to let people know that you're still thinking. When I listen back to the, the raw version of this podcast, I am always quite appalled with how disfluent I am. So, Yeah, it takes practice to become a fluent speaker in uh, – it's it's kind of a natural. Yes. Um, yeah, that's why it takes practice because no one nat. Well, I'm not going to say that because every once in a while you get the people who have a natural talent for that kind of thing. But sure. So some English discourse repair things are stuff like that is I mean, let's see, um, as you know, which marks something that you expect your listener to know, but you you need to bring it into the topic anyway. That sort of stuff. Um, As you know, he was sleeping with his mistress. <laughs> that was a little harder because, as you know, should be not that sort of rhetorical stunt. As you know, he was sleeping with his mistress. What yeah. you didn't know Although, was that there was five of them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> any, any writing teacher will will complain about overuse of "as you know" in in expository dialogue. <laughs> in a paper, right. I would be very ashamed of them. Yeah. Yeah. Right, so things that that work colloquially work less well, and it's just necessary because we're speaking and things fall apart. Uh-huh. Um, there's something else I was going to say about repair. Oh, I wish I could remember it. Years ago, I read a language grammar that had a discourse particle, which was used um, to say the following constituent belongs in the previous sentence. That's a really useful thing. Apparently, for... apparently the language objected somewhat strongly to incomplete sentences or found them inappropriate somehow. So you would use this particle plus whatever part you missed to say, oh, this slots into the syntax of the previous sentence somehow. That seems like a very useful thing, though. It does. Yeah. Um... I mean, it, to me, it's a little bit strange because most of the time with the sort of normal conversational context, if somebody adds something, you sort of might know that it fits into the syntax, the syntax previously. I think a lot of times when people do that, it's probably more of they start to repeat the sentence. Right, or they use an anaphoric verb or something like that, some reduced version of what they just said, plus the new information. Or they say, that is, da-da-da. Right. And rephrase right. it entirely. Yeah. Um... Okay, so that's that. Um, uh, discourse particles can introduce transitions between topics. And here by I mean topic, I mean narrative topics, not topic as in a topical um, things. Or you can introduce a new one like how about as for blah, blah, blah. There are various ways to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, people still write long papers on how Homer uses particles to introduce transitions between scenes in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, we've already talked a little bit about scalarity 
scalar particles, inclusion versus exclusion in along a continuum. And in English, most of these are adverbs, and, and in other languages, they might be as well. Um, one of my favorites, again, from ancient Greek is per, which started off life as a scalar particle indicating a high degree. It, you could sort of think of it as another way of saying very. Okay. But it got used so often in a particular construction with participles that it came to mean although. <laughs> That's interesting. So it transitioned from, you know, a scalar particle adverby kind of thing into it got glommed into another conjunction and together they mean although. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. So it became a part of syntax uh, rather than a purely discourse thing. Okay. Um, some yeah. languages, mar- this is not strictly speaking quite the same, but uh, well, no, it is the same. Um, some languages mark focus with particles. All right. Um, some languages have separate words for question focus and negative focus. You know, it's not me who slept with the senator. Um, or, you know, was it the secretary who slept with the senator? Um, I'm trying to think. Navajo has a special um, question clinic, which is used to focus the word you're most interested in. Oh, interesting. Um, negative focus particles are really interesting and weird, both for scope reasons and just because they're weird. I mean, English, no, I've not really studied languages that use them, so if you're in for, if you like reading papers about linguistics, Google negative focus particle, because they're neat. <laughs> All right, well, we'll have to, yes, there's a lot of things here where people are want, going to want to, um, search for things and um, one suggestion I have like just to take a little break in in just listing everything that happens I think probably if people can find some stuff and William has found some stuff I found one paper on on Chinese that might help people where you can look at discourse particles in other languages um that could help you figure out discourse particles in your conlang because it could give you sort of the range that a, a discourse particle does because often one particle will do two or three or four of these things. Right, right. That was That's actually, I, I made the point of adding that to the notes. Very often, a single part, particle will either have multiple jobs or mm-hmm. will merge some of these different discourse functions. So to boot, which I was talking about before, in addition to marking scalarity, very often, but not always, um, at least in my dialect of English, has a positive overtone. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I think the problem that I have with these, especially when adding them to a conlang, is not thinking of things they should do, but is rather the extent or making it so they don't just cover the same semantic space as, like, in English anyway. Right. Because when you learn them in another language, it's very hard to figure out where exactly they go, because sometimes it just doesn't, well, sometimes never does it ever actually overlap in the same places. And then Uh the other problem I have is saying it in a different way, because they do kind of mean nothing on their own. And... So it's like 
could I stick the word any and the word way together to mean anyway, or should I think of something new? Right. And it's kind of hard for me to come up with new ways that aren't just copying the other languages I know. Yeah, it is. It is hard because, again, because as I've said, unless you've got a linguistically aware textbook or language instructor, it's very hard to discuss these. I remember my high school German textbook was dreadful on these. It wasn't until I got to college German that anyone was able to explain to me what the hell mall was for. <laughs> I mean, I sort of when you see it used, you sort of get a feel for some situations where you can use it, but that is a bad way to introduce people, especially beginning language instruction. That's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually why before this podcast I went on a search for um papers about Chinese discourse particles because I know a bunch of Chinese discourse particles for Mandarin, this is what I'm saying. But it was never fully explained to me how they were used. Like I always thought that nega was purely just a hesitation marker, but according to this paper I found, it looks like it actually does other things as well. Oh, well, that's good to know. I know it mostly is a hesitation marker. Yeah. Um, uh, what was I going to say? Yeah. Spanish. Does anyone know what pues means? Pues? 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 pues, pues. Um, it's I all... think it means something different in every square mile of of the Spanish-speaking world. Uh, I have um, – in Spanish classes, I was taught that pues or pos, which is another variant, um, means well in the – in – Sort of the discourse meaning of well, where you are moving on to another topic. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know if it has any other means. No, it definitely that. has other means, because I will always remember my friend from Bolivia saying that word alone rather angrily at her mom, who re- responded poorly to that. Yeah, <laughs> I think there, um, there are also uses within a sentence, rather than fronted or, or alone, that are a little bit bit different, so maybe we need a linguistically aware native speaker to try to figure that out for us. Yeah, for for, for their dialect. Anyway, um, I do think, though, that if you can look at a collection of different languages and how they do discourse particles, you can get an idea of different kinds of mixing and matching that happen naturally, that are probably the best way you have to do this without just relaxing your own native language or, you know, Germans or Dutch, which are, appear, you know, are really popular um, also, subjects for papers. It also it has, has to do with um, when you're making discourse particles for a conlang, it's going to be a little bit of an, uh, of an art because the science behind them is a little bit younger. So we don't really That's know true. as much about them. That's true. There, yes, definitely plenty of arguments about what actually these things mean. Um, Bianca, you're very silent right now. <laughs> well, I'm just listening. I mean... Yeah. I anyway. Mean, we can I don't do know. I think all conlang is an art. I could do without the science bit just fine on my own. But I guess well, that's counter to most of our advice to go out there and read more <laughs> stuff. Well, it's all an art. But usually we're talking about conlang as an art informed by science, at least if you want to make something naturalistic. Yeah, I think it's, it's like pottery, right? You need to understand a little bit of, about the chemistry of your glazes yeah. and, and, and the, the, what happens at high temperatures to, to, to do this. Better. See, anyway. I'm, I'm or, the kind of person who's like, run wild, just see what happens and learn from it. 
<laughs> or like cooking. Co- cooking is even a, a better exp- example. You need a lot of chemistry and physics, basic chemistry and physics knowledge to actually cook properly. No, just mess around with it. You'll learn. See? That's how I do my cooking. You have to figure out how long to cook things anyway. Um, Anyway, so the only other thing that I was thinking that didn't make it onto my list but that now occurs to me that discourse particles can do is um, they can serve a – it's kind of like turn-taking, but they can be – sort of solidarity or anti-solidarity markers. Um, plenty of languages have particles or other ways to say things that you expect your audience to agree with. Huh. That was now, something I you heard... you may be thinking, that's a very foolish idea. Yeah. Yeah. That was something I heard mentioned in passing in, as involved singlish particles. But it, Oh, uh, that they're sort of... Like la and stuff has a little bit of a solidarity... Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, um, I think English, you know, is a little bit like that sometimes. Yeah, probably. It's, it's, it's so bled of the normal semantic sense of no that, that I see oh. that as, a, as an yeah. interactional yeah, kind of you thing. You know, has nothing to do with knowing anything. It's yeah, just... right, right. Um, let's see. Right, so... So far, we've been talking about the different things particles can do, sort of in isolation. Um, from the standpoint of creating them, um, very often other parts of speech may be grabbed and turned into particles. Um, so English uses a time adverb now as a topic changer. Yes. Right? Um, in English, um, well among other things, can be a topic changer, and it's a little informal compared to now, which is more formal. And I, frankly, in my dialect of English, using now as a topic changer is a little old-fashioned. It sounds sort of teacher Like someone's to about me. to, yeah, teacher here, someone's going to tell me a story now about... Now children. Right, exactly, exactly. It's time that we read our stories. Right, right. Um, Actually, I only, I think I only ever use now in that phrase, now children, it's time to behave. <laughs> That's 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 that makes for more of uh, an authoritative. I have the authority to change the topic. So, um, but and then as we said, so here's well as a topic changer. But we also use well when we're about to say something that we expect our listener will find disagreeable. Somehow. That's true. It, there's and there's sometimes some reservation involved with well. Right. Like, it's it's, well, it's, it's Yes, it's either it's either distancing from the standpoint of the speaker or possibly preparing the listener for bad news. Yeah, preparing preparing the listener for a disagreement. Yeah. Um. Uh, discourse particles, um, if they are actually particles and not these fixed phrases like English has, um, will often pattern sometimes with conjunctions. They might pattern with modal markers, or they might pattern with evidentials. Mm-hmm. All of those possibilities or some wonderful, confusing combination of them are all possibilities. Uh, so one of the uh, papers I found was an entire chapter on discourse particles in a particular dialect of Malay. And yeah. uh, in that list, it's like discourse particle, discourse particle. And suddenly it's like, oh, this is an evidential. Oh, wow. Huh. Like, Oh, this is a direct sensory evidential. Okay. Um, so... If you're going to have a bunch of these discourse particles, you might find it useful to look at 
an old-fashioned Greek grammar, even though it will explain the discourse particles badly, but it will let you know something very, very important, which is if you have lots of particles, they will come in particular orders if you use more than one. Oh, okay. Like, so, so going back to that, you mentioned that a little bit earlier. So ancient Greek, like, will stack up a bunch of discourse particles? Or oh, what? God, yes. All the time. In, in highly literary Greek, you may get stacks of multiple particles. It's, it actually, it's quite common. Wow, so that's 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 quite interesting. I'm, I'm going to have to read a little bit about that and figure because that sounds interesting. Yeah, I I, I don't know offhand what the longest chain is. Um, part of the complexity is that many of Greeks' discourse particles are enclitic. Uh huh. Right, they become glommed onto the previous words. But there's a much larger clitic chain, which includes certain kinds of pronouns as well, so you get an enormous pile of words that have no accent of their own. <laughs> so it's just like just this like string of seven syllables that's all discourse information mostly. Yeah. Right. Or or largely. Um I'm gonna see if I can f- find this. No, I I can't. Um, So once you've decided on an order for these particles, particular particle combinations might become sort of lexicalized on their own and take on their own life. This can get very complicated. Um, One of my favorite examples, again, from ancient Greek is when two different particles, ge, which is a selection particle, and the man, which is this particle where you assert the truth of something in the face of expecting disagreement or surprise from your listener, sort of glommed together on their own and started acting like a conjunction. What? Started acting like a post-positive conjunction used in, in paired up with a different kind of conjunction. I'm not even going to explain that Greek has. So certain patterns that become popular for whatever reason will, can take a life on, take on a life of their own. Seems like the discourse particles may be one part of the language that's constantly shifting around. Sure. Certainly, um, they change through time, and and there's a possibility for a great deal of dialect richness as well. Well, um, I think they have the two factors that at least I, under no scientific consideration, consider important for things to change, which are they're used frequently, and no one's too sure exactly what they mean. Yeah, well, people may not know what they mean, but they have no problem using them correctly and consistently. Yeah, and they're That's happy true. to extend them. To all yeah, I, I think, well, like all words, but I, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be inclined to agree with you that they, it does seem like they're a little bit more um, liable to change over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So there was something I was going to say after that. But I can't remember. No. Um, Miyaka, do you have any sort of interesting last thoughts on this? Mm, not really. The only thing I really remember about these things is that they're just a pain to learn. They're like, as a second language, these are the things that are really going to throw you because you're not going to know exactly where to put them. Right. Yeah. If I, th- I think if as you're translating things you feel that you don't quite understand your own discourse particles, you may be on the right track. 
Um, I mean, that's that's sort of a joke. Ser- in, in seriousness, you should try to define what they do, but still, it's going to be a little bit of a fuzzy thing because it's the these things tend to since they're not since there's not much not really any semantic information in here. It's all sort of discourse operations that they they do. It's going to be a little mind-breaking in any naturalistic language that's not your own to really um, use discourse particles properly. Yeah, yeah. Um, One thing we've not really talked about is where these particles go. Um, And partially that depends on their history. If it used to be an adverb or if it's still an active adverb that also has a discourse, meaning it will pattern like adverbs, obviously, saying with conjunctions. Um, in more than one language, not just ancient Greek, the particles accumulate in dun da da Wackernagel position. Yes. I know that that term makes some people, I think Germans, giggle when I say that with an English accent, um, or an American accent. So Wackernagel position means that it, the particles accumulate following the first content, the first meaning-bearing word in the sentence. Yeah. But, but... A speaker like Demosthenes could put um, certain particles in three different positions hmm. because because the language was changing about where it wanted things to go. In Homer, he wanted that particle to be the first thing possible in a noun phrase. It would come. It would separate a, a demonstrative from the rest of the phrase. It would separate a preposition from the rest of the phrase. Um, but over time, that thing could move and shifted, and shifted over time as the whole phrase together was taken to be the single unit rather than the word. So you might have interesting word order effects depending on what word order you've picked for your language. And if you've got a non-configurational language, then all sorts of wackiness can follow. But even if you have a non-configurational language, like the, the classic radically non-configurational languages such as ancient Greek, Walpiri particles cluster in Wackernagel position. All right. We've talked quite a long time on this, and um, I'm going to say, dear listeners, please sort of pick two or three favorite languages to try to go in deeper on what their discourse particles are. Uh, William, like William suggested, uh, German and Dutch and ancient Greek all have very um, interesting discourse particles and, and you can find them. information on them yes you can find Chains has quite a lot but I can't find a whole lot of information on it that's, that's yeah. my problem um, yeah. there's and I'm sure any of you out there probably know of some language where there's a lot of uh, these words that you may now realize are discourse particles and you may want to go a little bit in-depth on whatever whatever your favorite language is, but um, the, that will... The Conlang Novogradian has a nice list of them as well. Yeah. If, if, but, yeah, and looking at these things that other languages will, will help with um, figuring out what you want to do for your own language. But for now, I think we're going to move on. We are going to have This time, we have a featured Natlang, and 
we are talking about Maka, or yep. actually, the this says uh, Nutka and Maka. I think these are two variants of the same language. Yes, yes, they're closely related dialects of um, the closely related in the Wakashian language family. Yeah, which is okay. another one of these wonderful languages of the Pacific Northwest yeah. with a big, big, juicy sound inventory. Yeah, and William, you found this wonderful paper for us, this wonderful grammar by Matthew Davidson. I know, isn't it great? It's the whole thing. Yes. With a giant dictionary. It's magnificent. If nothing else, if you have no interest in these languages, I don't care. Go look at the dictionary. Let's 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 let me. I didn't get to the dictionary when I was. Oh, it's just full of all sorts of really interesting stuff. Oh, big massive dictionary. Um, uh, little finger and little toe is somehow related to younger brother. It seems like. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> Isn't that great? It's <laughs> cute. Like you could have your family. The big brother could be like your middle finger, then your middle brother, and then anyway, that's cute. I may steal that now. Okay. Yes. Um, no, wait, no, never mind. I already used some weird stuff going on with family. You can't steal it. <laughs> this is a, a great dictionary. Yeah, Thanks no, for... it's, it's really great. Um, uh, people who are interested in creating dialects of their own language might find it interesting since he's discussing two dialects at the same time. Um, yeah, and he, he goes into both of them. Like, yep. I know that he has the phonology of one followed by the phonology of the other and then kind of mixes them up. Right, right. Um, there are a few reasons why I thought this was such a, a great language for language inventors. First, polysynthesis is popular these days, and this is a highly synthetic language. Um, it has a tremendous, gigantic list of suffixes that are used to modify the meanings of words. Mm-hmm. Um, second, it has some interesting phonological processes, which we're not going to talk about all of, but some of them are very interesting. Um, and really, those are the two. Um, and this is the paper that let me know that mean, truly meaningless words that you need because otherwise you can't get the meaning from a suffix can actually be used in a, in a naturalistic language. So these languages have so many suffixes that very basic concepts like in the river may only be available as a suffix that you would normally attach to a different word. Wow, that's interesting. So they have a, a, different, a, a few different patterns of null roots to be used so that you can affix these things. Mm-hmm. Which I would have thought unnatural, but here it is. It's a very, uh, very in-depth grammar here for us to look at. And I didn't really... Um, this is where I, I didn't do all my homework is that I didn't fully um, I didn't really fully look through this whole grammar. It's very big. I just looked at the the phonology, which just the the phonology stuff is massive because there's it a is. whole lot of different um, phonological processes that go on in this language. Right. When I first found this grammar months and months and months ago, I immediately downloaded it into my iPad, and it was it was bedtime reading for several days. 
Yes, yes. So I, I, I have more of it at hand than, than probably anyone else, but that's a little I'm, unusual. I'm, I'm going to have to look at it a little bit more over the next few days, maybe. But it's a great uh, resource, and this is an interesting language to look at. Right. Um, so in terms of phonological processes, the language has both long and short vowels, but where the long vowels can occur is, is quite constrained. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are also, if, if I'm remembering correctly, I should have reread some of this. There are some vowel long vowels that can be reduced, and some that cannot ever. Mm-hmm. So you have an interesting mix of possibilities there. Um, it's some of his are some of those are long and short, and I think some of them are tense and lax actually. But he sort of marks them the same. Maybe because they pattern similarly. There was an interesting thing in the consonants that he said there, the glottal stop and the pharyngealized glottal stop, he actually put in the adjectives row because he said they seem to pattern like adjectives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's that That sort of made me, that that interested me because it's sort of like, Something you don't necessarily think about, that it's just the glottal restriction that affects um, how they pattern, mm-hmm. necessarily. But, uh, right. Yeah, it has lots of glottalized things, like glottalized resonance as mm-hmm. well, which is always... Well, it's typical of the Northwest, but a little bit unusual otherwise. Um, so I'm looking right now on page 23, and you have an ablaut change, which is only used for the vocative. Mm-hmm. So the normal word for chief, I wonder if I can say this, hotwith. Um, hotwith becomes hotwith. Just a, a vowel change to indicate that you're using direct address, which is pretty interesting. Um, it appears to only happen in the final syllable of a word. Why would you ever directly address a squirrel? Um, squirrel, why did you steal my nuts? Maybe so, um, it's one of those things of saying thanks to the squirrel after you killed it. Uh, maybe I don't know. So that's, it goes I'm from. Sorry, that's, that's, that's such a stereotypical Native American thing to talk about. But hey, if saying thank you is nicer than what the Maya did. <laughs> they they always offered a little blood after they killed. Okay, so their own blood. So yeah, they offered seem, blood for everything. Tzimtu becomes Tzimto if you want to. So I'm going to start calling my squirrels that when I go chase them out of my garden. There's there's, there's a not-so-nice uh, tradition involving hunting that is associated with my family that may have come from a Native American tradition, but I'll talk about that after recording. Okay, good. <laughs> um, there's an entire chapter on, as George said, phonological alterations, short vowel or, or neutralization of vowel length, which I've talked about before. Um, stress accent shifts can do all sorts of fun things. Um, we have umlaut. We have um, ra- uh, fronting processes that happen um, in certain contexts. Uh, labialized consonants, as always, are subject to various phonological abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, the most wonderful thing that just to use George's phrase, broke my brain, starts on page 40. Page and that 40. is affix-associated constant vowel templates. So Ooh, I'm just yeah. going to read these, this sentence here. An unusual characteristic of Wakashian affixes, both suffixes and infixes, is that they impose restrictions on the structure of this constant vowel skeleton of the word containing them. 
In most cases, these configurational requirements have no semantic significance and are merely formal um, combinatorial properties of the affixes in question. Okay, basically, we have 11 patterns of what to do with a constant vowel pattern. Numerous kinds of reduplication, vowel length changes, and consonant insertions. <laughs> so lengthening um, additional syllables reduplication and the secret to the end sometimes you have long syllable reduplication sometimes short syllable reduplication the point is that enormous list of suffixes I talked about before tells you what's happening to the root okay so adding do we have a nice example here oh great so, <laughs> I love this this is a great phrase each with fingers shot off okay (laughs) so the suffix that indicates something happened in the hands nuke causes a reduplication and vowel length change so you take the word amputate which is mutk and add your nuke and then you get mumutk nuke (laughs) I can't say that it's hard Uh, to say yeah Um, so the point is, a word um, becomes changed based on the suffix. So here's another one that's maybe a little easier for me to say. Long, yak, with the suffix he, meaning at the limbs. So you put them together, you get the phrase long-limbed. But the point is that the suffix he, for at the limbs, forces a reduplication and a vowel lengthening in the main syllable. So you have yak, yak, he. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So that's on page 42 is where that's described. So what's fun, though, and it gets complicated, is because you can add chains of suffixes. Which ones do you use to determine the pattern of the syllable to which, you know, the root to which you're suffixing things? And I like to complain about English stress. (laughs) This is just insanity. Can you imagine having to learn this? I don't know how the brain organizes it. I don't know how he managed to figure this out. Yeah. Whatever poor field linguist had to do this. I'm guessing several generations of field linguists are are responsible for what knowledge we have now. Why? Because one's brain exploded and then the next one had to take over? (laughs) Yes. This grammar is somebody's dissertation, so it's possible that he may be... um, just pulling from a lot of field linguists and yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe he did, he did yeah. some of his own work. And There's a lot of background information. Anyway, so it spends, you know, 30 or 40 pages. Is that right? No, 20 or 30 pages just talking about these various root changes that are uh-huh. induced by different kinds of suffixes. Strawberry up in the air. <laughs> Sorry, that's a great example word. I love I love that you Pages can add that an affix that causes that that forty four. Yeah, forty four. It's um yeah, example number forty eight. Oh yeah, look at that. <laughs> so the suffix you have a yeah, right, you have a locative suffix to indicate something is up in the air or standing. Selects template A. Except strawberry is a gigantic word. So right, so these changes are happening. <laughs> On the first syllable of the word, that seems relevant to to mention. Yeah, it just it just lengthens the the first vowel there. Yeah, lengthens and or reduplicates and or does other kinds of hanky panky. Anyway, it's an interesting um, 
system. I, I'm not sure most Kotlingers want to produce the, a full system as complex as this, but there's there's a lot of interesting stuff there. That would be an idea. I don't know if I would ever want to make a language that does this complicated of stuff, mainly because I don't quite understand it yet. See, well, it I'd want to do something this wonderfully complicated. I just don't have the time and effort to do this. This is intense craziness. It would take it would take a, quite a long time to figure out how all this works and you know test out words and see if it right. looks to your liking and all that yeah. stuff. It's, yeah, that's what that's our job is to give people things to look at. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly it's certainly a, a an interesting idea. I'd love to see somebody uh, try this in a conlang. It's just kind of really um, looks really labor intensive to create. Certainly, it was even more labor-intensive to figure out in a natural language, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. So another great example on page 84, example 137a. What is this? Pietli Jachs, a dog in a vessel. <laughs> okay. Is that like, what kind of vessel? I have no clue. I don't think a cooking vessel. It's not like a dog in a boat. Or... It could be a dog in a boat. I don't, honestly, I don't know. In a vessel, I'm guessing, actually means a boat. Okay. <laughs> we launched the dog down the river. <laughs> uh, anyway, I had a joke that I was going to give my cat a Viking funeral. Oh, really? Uh, some friends and I, years and years ago, gave a friend's mouse a Viking funeral. We built a little matchbox. <laughs> Long ship. <laughs> Set it out into the lake and lick it on fire. <laughs> Oh, uh, there we go. A dog in a vessel. Yeah. Mm. Unfortunately, there are... What page was it? 84, did I say? Yeah. Oh, I see it. Fortunately, there are larger um, example phrases and sentences further in the document, so you can get a better idea of how to express things mm-hmm. um, in a language that's so heavily suffixing and, and, and synthetic. Yeah. It is very interesting, though. Very... Uh, and unlike one's face against the wall, uh-huh. which is all one word, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Having one's face against the wall, and it's a, and it's a surprisingly short word. It's a little tough. Um, what's nice about this grammar is, unlike all too many um, freely available references on Native American language, this one actually has a syntax. Which is useful. Mm-hmm. And I like nice. that. A collectivity of fog. I'm always trying to find interesting things to do with these damn weather verbs. Uh-huh. And I like that. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, people who are looking for more derivational affixes will enjoy... <laughs> what? They just have, like, so many. Like, when I was looking through the samples earlier, like, the word for rope was not even a word for rope. It was just two of the derivational things stuck together. Yep. <laughs> what is it? It was, like, thing that was twisted, and that was the word for rope. <laughs> That's right. awesome. Um, anyway, so back way down in page the 350, is a little bit like 357 is where they start, is... Um, verbalizing suffixes, nominalizing suffixes, all this is a big long list of suffixes, in addition to the code which describes which pattern they inflict on the root to which they've been attached. <laughs> inflict is a great word for that. Right. Um, 
What else? I mean, a lot of the derivational elements, nothing, they don't seem obviously weird. A lot of them seem very useful. Although this one here, at the bottom of page 359, um, this suffix, um, tzich, means using something as fuel. Wait a minute, 359? Yeah. Um, at the bottom, the very last one. So I suppose for, you know, the Spanish Inquisition, you could attach that to people. Using people as fuel. Um, I'm trying to figure out where, because for me, 359 is Ed Notes. Are you looking at the PDF page number or the actual page number on the page? So, I'm trying to look at both because the page number on the page told me um, 359. Let me look again. It's weird. Okay. Anyway, oh, there, there is, we go. I see. There is a huge list of these suffixes. Huge, huge, huge. Um, so go look and, and get wonderful ideas. Oh, here's a special suffix to indicate that something's been dried. Mm-hmm. That's useful. On a nice. visit for the purpose of getting seeking. Yeah. That's for, not that weird. Yeah, no, that's very useful. Maybe that's like when you go to a business meeting. Or when you go to your parents' house hoping that they'll cook you dinner. Right. Here's here's an awesome one. So this is a suffix that goes, that means consuming, costing, or having sexu- sexual intercourse with. Goodness, that's an interesting semantic range. Yes, it is, isn't it? I was about to say that. That sounds rife for puns. And one is traveling in blank mini- vehicle traveling by blank means so it's sort of yeah so you anyway so this is train or something if you can't get marianne mithun's gigantic overview of all the languages of of native north america this document is your best introduction to um these really wonderful derivational processes that can be had anywhere it's great every conlanger should look at it unless you make these very simple morphologically simple conlangs it's lovely. It is lovely. And I'm not sure I have anything else to say about it. I surely don't. I just say everybody should go to our show notes and get that grammar, download it, read it. Um, take take a few days to read it if you want. If you need to, there are there is lots of information on it, and I certainly don't know. I I certainly haven't read it sufficiently yet, so. Um, if nothing yeah. else, even if you're not interested in making languages like this, read the dictionary. I say again. Yeah, Bianca, do you have any final thoughts on this this language mm, before we? Nothing that on? you guys haven't said already. Yeah. Well, I think we can sort of put that one to bed and say, uh, go read, do your homework. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to move on to feedback. We got an email. Really awesome uh, email here that uh, we've gotten a few good emails recently, but I'm gonna kind of I think we need to kind of stretch them out across multiple shows, maybe. Sure. But um, this one, he says, this is from Jordan of deconstructing conlanging, and he says, so first off, let me start by saying how we love your podcasts and posts. They provide a great resource for the conlanging community. Me and two other friends who went 
who met online through various conlanging forums or Tumblr have started a blog devoted to conlanging, but specifically trying to provide an easy-to-understand resource for newbie conlangers. We have about 30 or more posts already and one episode of our very own podcast that we're planning on running. We were wondering if you could give our blog slash podcast either a mention or a link on one of your next posts. I will link to this blog. That's me Yay! We're, sp- we're, we're, sp- <laughs> we're spawning a multitude <laughs> of... Okay, one other conlanging <laughs> podcast. Yeah. It starts um, with one. It starts with I, one. Our empire is coming together. I took a <laughs> quick glance at the, the Tumblr blog. It looks like a good beginner resource. And um, I I have downloaded the first episode of the podcast. I haven't listened to it yet, but I plan on checking that out and seeing. And here I thought Tumblr was only used for pictures of naked people and cats. Oh, Tumblr is used for a lot of things. Yeah. I've seen Tumblr used for some creepier things. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Um, he said, uh, we're, we're just a new blog trying to fill a niche in the conline community that we feel believe is left somewhat unfilled. We by no means want to compete with your podcast. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, of course you don't want to compete with us. You just want to supplement <laughs> us. No, it's it's good that there's more people um, getting involved in the community and and putting out content out there. This is, that's why I started this podcast. Is I was like, I want to do a podcast. Conlanging doesn't really have a podcast other than LCS podcast, which is not frequent enough to be worth anything. Um, I actually agree that there isn't much out there for beginners because a lot of yeah what I see going on is go look at Wikipedia. Go look at the LCK, and I'm not really, not really a big fan of the LCK. Actually, I mean it'll do, but I think something better could be done. And yeah, Wikipedia is—it's very disjointed. If you're and going technical, through. I mean, and it's technical. Just, there's a lot of good information, but if you do not know some stuff, then some articles are almost impossible to comprehend. If you're starting from the beginning, what will happen is you'll read through. About halfway through your first sentence, you'll see a word you don't know what it means, so you have to go read that. Same thing will happen on that one, and then you'll have 30 tabs open and have no idea what's happening. Yeah, and uh, from what what I'm... uh, Yeah, there's certainly not a whole lot. Um, Language Construction Kit is a pretty good primer, but it's it's still a little... It gets a little bit technical. Um, This... I can, I can, I think I can. We can recommend just based on the what the blog uh, is. Is it really is a good resource for newbies and even people who want to get into some real linguistics? Because there's they talk a lot of um, explaining terminology here and stuff. Oh, that's very valuable. That's great. That's 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 really great. Um, because I imagine and that this podcast is for beginners too, which it is sort of. But not we, quite. all of us, all of us have a linguistics, some linguistics training. Yeah. Well, I would say this podcast. I'd say it's is, for more amateur novice rather than beginner beginner. Yeah, it's I think more, that makes sense. It's more sort of an intermediate thing. Like, I mean, we talk about some stuff that's at beginner level. We talk about some stuff that's at a more advanced level. We're we're trying to be more of a sort of a general 
weekly podcast to talk about. It's nice to have something that's specifically targeted at beginners here with uh, deconstructed construction. And I think um, anybody who's a total noob that's listening to us and has no idea what we're talking about, maybe you should uh, look at that one too. What's a scalar discourse particle? Yeah. (laughs) What's a particle? (laughs) And, uh, you know... That can uh, that can uh, help answer some some of the more basic questions for you. But anyway, I think I think it's a great thing that we're spawning that uh, we're spawning a few more efforts in this uh, in this same vein. Yep, absolutely. For more sure. podcasts. Yeah. Oh, I can be as silly as I want now. It doesn't matter. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh well. Um, well, um, I think we can wrap up this episode. I have uh, a very long, large amount of time on my counter, so I think this, that means it's time to wrap it up. So I'm going to say for the final time, Bianca, do you have any final words of wisdom? I forgot to think my final words of wisdom. No. I think that'll be typical of my response to that question. <laughs> Uh, or you can just cut it and edit it so it's just me going shit and that's it uh, William do you have anything Bianca will be back that's my feeling no one leaves conlanging forever <laughs> yes I'm sure that that uh, yes I, I do hope that you do come back to us too Bianca to, yeah. to talk with us from time to time I know that you're busy you don't you can't commit to the regular hosting anymore and um by the way guys i'm already on working on getting somebody else um to fill the third host slot because i we 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 do feel like it's best with uh three people on the podcast so um don't worry there shouldn't be any delay in your podcast coming out we should be having getting a, a third voice on here or if we don't get a third voice on here in time, we can do just a me and William one. But I would prefer to have a third person. We've done it before. Yeah, we've done. Yes, it. you've done it a couple of times. Just because yeah. I tend to. I think I think we could do it if we if it came to that. But for now, I'm just gonna say happy conlanging. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. Comments, questions, and suggestions can be sent to conlangery at gmail.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and maybe leave us a five-star review while you're at it. You can also like us at facebook.com slash conlangery, follow us on Twitter at conlangery, or circle us on Google Plus by searching for Conlangery Podcast. Our theme music was created by the band Null Device. Does the entirety of the British Isles have the same time zone? I, don't I would it. assume so. Yeah, it's not terribly wide. Of course, Brit- time zones don't make any sense. The entirety of China is technically under one time zone. Oh, this.
is ridiculous. So Iceland is also in the same time zone as England. But there's a part of Greenland which is directly north of it, which is in the time zone Iceland should be in, which is minus one. <laughs> but the rest of Greenland is in minus three. This is just Iceland trying to to uh, to assert that it's part of Europe. Now, the British Isles just making Ireland, having Ireland be part of the, the GMT time zone, that makes sense. Yeah, that's not like a whole thousand miles over. But so many of these decisions are just weird political Imagine if the whole U.S. was one time zone. And it was all like Washington time, or D.C. time, I should say. That's basically the equivalent, because China is about actually, depending on who you talk to, it's either bigger or smaller. It's, it's, It's a little bit smaller, honestly, because claiming it's bigger uh, requires you to claim all of the territory that China claims on the Indian border and including Taiwan and all that, so it's a little bit smaller. (laughs) Chile has a funny thing. Remember when when we had Torco on the show in the first place? It uh, changes with the daylight savings time. It'll either be like one hour difference or three hour difference, I think. No, it actually can be the same um, during our summer and their winter. I think the uh, the time is the same for East Coast and for Chile, but they diverge after that. Yeah. So then it's either zero or two. Columbia Wait, India is yellow. What does yellow signify on this map? Did they just make up their own? Um, there are some places that have. One off, give, like half hour time zones. Yeah. They give a big F you to the rest of the planet. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Like, I think. You yes, India is one whole five and a half. Is half. Yeah. Uh, India That's is five just. And a half. What the hell? What? Venezuela is off by a minute. Is it? No, it's a half hour. Minutes. Oh, half hour, half hour. Wait, no, why is it? I don't understand what it means. Because uh, Chavez wants to be different from everybody else. That's all. Anyway. did he? Is he responsible for that? Good old Ugo. Um, there was some proposal I read that somebody sa- suggested moving the international dateline so that it just straight up goes right through the Bering Strait rather than having to jag over. But it was uh, associated with a uh, map, um, a map projection that is truly. Oh, that makes sense. Yes. Oh, great! My banjo is singing to me because I was too noisy. All right. <laughs> is that like uh, how a snare drum will start to the snares will start to vibrate? George, turn down QQ. 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 Um, I heard the knocking. I still, every once in a while, have that two-second pause of me going, who's knocking at his door? Wait, <laughs> no one's knocking at his door. <laughs> so. Just kangaroos and bugs that'll make you hurt. Oh, man, when I told my husband we had poisonous snakes in America, he's like, what? And I was like, there's not that many. There's maybe one poisonous snake in Maryland. He's like, I'm not going outside again. I was like, you're retarded. <laughs> 
years and years ago, I think I got bit by some nasty variety of spider, and so I went to the Merc Manual to read about spider bites, and I thought, okay, I'm probably not going to lose a limb. But I was reading about tropical snake bites that happen in the United States. There are 50 a year. And the Merck Manual, which is a, this dry clinical work, had just the best sentence ever. That the people who get bit by these snakes are typically young males who, have been, were, who were harassing the animal beforehand. And that's the most common course of tetrodotoxin poisoning in the United States is frat boys in California who have been dared to swallow geckos. Idiots. The the national the CDC not the CDC the National Institute of Health whatever they have some national medical foundation has a big long list of you know symptoms and treatments for these and one of the symptoms for tetrodotoxin poisoning is and it actually said this an impending sense of doom. Me, I yell whenever I stub my toe, but I completely ignored the pain from uh, my appendix rupturing until it. Was oh my too god. Late. It actually ruptured? Yes. This is why I can never do this show drunk, because no one would hear anything else but me. <laughs> How many conline communities are there? This is just, you know... I just saw that today, and I, like, snooped on DeviantArt just to see what they were saying. I was like, I would not expect DeviantArt as a place for conlangers. 